Hey there, this is Ray Dadaram from STEP, and welcome to this episode of Meta Conversations, where I interview successful startup founders in or from emerging markets. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Rami and Apple Podcasts, or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Meta Conversations. I'm joined today with uh, Ola Dedin from BitOasis. Uh, she's the co-founder and CEO of BitOasis, uh, one of the fastest growing startups in MENA region. Ola, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Ray. I'm very happy to be on the podcast today. Thanks for hosting me. I'm, I'm in Broken Bow, Oklahoma, so bring in some winter vibes from here. Uh, yeah, it's great yeah. to be able to do this uh, all the way across the world. Uh, I want to get started by uh, asking you, uh, before going to the story, and I will add a disclaimer, you know, saying this is not an investment advice. Is now a good time to buy Bitcoin? <laughs> so, disclaimer, not, not investment advice. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm really, like, taking a long-term view, uh, you know, in the, on this market. So, for me, it's... Uh, you know, all up from here. <laughs> it's all upside. So yeah, yeah it's always a great time to buy Bitcoin. That's awesome. Uh, all right. So talking about when you got started, for me as someone from the outside, uh, I kind of feel that, you know, it was a perfect timing for when you started BitOasis, especially in the region, uh, before the whole kind of uh, first uh, wave of, of the, the, the rise in price of Bitcoin and Ethereum and the whole kind of crypto going more into the masses. So tell me about more about how you timed it. How did you look at that uh, when you got started? Uh, and, and was it kind of like thought through uh, in terms of timing or was it a little bit of luck? Yeah, um, I think when everyone looks at Bitter Oasis right now, they're like, oh, it's amazing. You guys timed it so well. I mean, there's a bit of a backstory there, like, the case with most entrepreneurs and most success, you know, stories. I mean, I think we're still on our journey to becoming successful. So we're not, in my mind, we're not there yet. We're day one, definitely. We're <laughs> day zero even. Um, so we started in, uh, we started Bit Oasis, actually. We all came together as co-founders. It was myself, Daniel, we've got a third co-founder uh, who's uh, uh, not full-time on Bit Oasis right now, but it was, you know, mainly me and, you know, Daniel kind of came into all together. It was around 2015, so it was a while back, right? You know, Bitcoin uh, was a few or maybe like $400 or so at that point. Um, it worked on an initial product, which wasn't exactly what the market was looking for. I mean, it was a multi-stick wallet at that point that we were trying to kind of localize quickly to realize actually what people want is a buy a way to buy and sell right <clears throat> you know the regulation didn't exist at that point the demand was still very little i would say you know obviously the early adopters and uh you know we started working along with our lawyers and engaging with different regulators and you know really starting those conversations in terms of you know how do we roll out that product to the market right and uh how do we do it in a compliant way, in a regulated way? You know, obviously the licenses don't exist yet. Let's see what other platforms have been doing in other markets. So we really, through engaging with our lawyers and all of that, figured out a path forward while obviously really like investing in self-regulation early on. And that really worked for us. And, you know, obviously we've gone through some bull markets 
during that period, so around 2017, is not like what we've seen this time around, right? Like in the beginning of this year or late last year, I would say yeah. the beginning of this year, that's definitely been the inflection point where I think real adoption of crypto or, uh, you know, more adoption or kind of wider adoption of crypto happened in the region. Um, but, you know, obviously we've gone through different cycles of growth and we've really invested in the product. We've really invested in our team, our knowledge and making sure that we've got uh, also, you know, building out a trading platform and like the matching part of it, et cetera. Uh, so there's been a lot of, you know, work in the back, including obviously engaging with regulators and really trying to kind of drive that educational part and awareness and, you know, working with different regulators across the UAE. And then, you know, now we're at the point where like getting all that massive growth and been obviously uh, the moment leading up to the bull market all throughout the bull market. And I do think we're still in the bull market in the middle of it. Um, and I think, you know, people kind of look at what we're doing and, you know, close around of 30 million, you know, dollars, et cetera. Um, they're like, Oh guys, you've timed it so well. You know, that's amazing. They're like, well, yeah, we've started like years ago. Right. You were <laughs> early, like yeah. made sure to survive to that point where, you know, you've got the breakthrough, right. And you make sure that you, uh, you're there when your customers need you and you're there at that point where you've got that hyper growth and you kind of ride that wave. Um, and that's been great. Now, I always kind of, you know, look in retrospect, okay, what we've done. And, and it's a bit hard to, when you start as a founder or you get an idea and you're like, that's what I want to do, right? It's a bit hard to figure out where are you on the time scale. Um, you know, in my opinion, we were late, because you had all those big platforms in different markets and, you know, raising rounds and all of that. So, you know, it's very, very hard to kind of figure out really where you are in the time scale. But when you start rolling out products and, you know, you get some traction and you start really like getting deep in the market, you start getting inputs and data and figuring out where you are. And, and I think at the point where we've realized, all right, guys, we're actually early, right? Like... <laughs> The playbook to make this successful is like, let's say, you know, one, two, three, four, but there are still components that don't exist. And a lot of it was actually regulation, right? And readiness for the banks to work with us. How long did that. it take you to and get then, regulated, to get your license? What? Sorry? Sorry? How long did it take you to, to get your license from when you started until you got your license? I mean, so we've gotten our initial approvals. I think that was in 2019. So around like three or four years, three and a half years after we've launched. And then the final approvals to that, I think it was early 2021. There's different reasons, obviously, why that's the case. Um, but even right now, you could argue that regulation of crypto is still work in progress, not just in the UAE, but, you know, in Saudi, across the region, you know, obviously kind of starts getting more complicated and, and, and you know, uh, harder once you start kind of looking to other markets where central banks are actually banning or making it illegal, right? So, yeah. it's, so it's a was journey. There a risk? Um, was there a risk that you, you, there... you wouldn't get your license? No, I don't think there was a point where we're not going to get licensed, right? I think all the data points, the inputs, the engagements that we've had with regulators, direction in general was, this is going to happen, right? So there wasn't any point of time where it was like a China approach. Um, 
because, you know, that would have been very easy. You know, saying a no is an easy one. Um, but I think the position that regulators have found themselves in is that, look, this is the future. And I think they have quickly actually figured that out, that, look, we're going to have to regulate this, right? We're going to be a jurisdiction. And I'm talking actually uh, about different jurisdictions as well, um, you know, including obviously UAE, Bahrain, you know, Saudi right now, etc. is that this is here to stay. So, so there wasn't at any point that we're going to, crack down on this, but I think the approach is let's better understand this. And that took time, obviously. And then like, let's figure out how we can like move forward together. Um, you know, it, it's a very delicate, I think, balance between innovation and regulation and it's work in progress. I don't think they quite got there. And, um, you know, us being in the market and doing this regulatory engagement, you know, I'd like to think it helped and I do think it actually did help. Um, so, you know, we're, we're doing our part, but eventually this ecosystem will have multiple players yeah. and multiple regulators and multiple banks. And all of that. You kind of did the pre-work for some of your competitors <laughs> before they got started. Yeah, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, yes and no, I think. Um, I mean, we're still obviously far ahead when it comes to the UAE where we've done, you know, quite a lot of investment in terms of making sure we crack this market. And I do think we were the ones that cracked it versus the competition. You know, Bahrain is a jurisdiction where we, until now, still work very closely with the regulators. Figuring out a path forward right in Bahrain is, is something that I think the competition obviously moved much faster on versus us. And uh, rightly so. I think people uh, pursue different strategies based on where they see the opportunity is. And I think markets like Saudi... Egypt, you know, others in the region are up for grabs right now. I mean, they haven't been properly kind of, you know, regulated or crashed. So, so yes, I think you do see different strategies, different approaches uh, by different exchanges. And uh, yes, we've definitely paved the way um, to some extent, but I think it's also responsibility of all the different players in the market eventually. So. Yeah, definitely. I want to switch talk a little bit about product and your your methodology or approach to uh, building out initially your your MVP or initial product and then scaling your product, uh, as well as how do you work with your uh, tech team in terms of uh, figuring out what what features should be shipped, uh, what the what the, your customers are looking for. Do you benchmark that against global players, or do you have other approach to 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 do that? Yeah, so very good question. <coughs> I think obviously our first product and the journey we've gone through and our approach even for like product development was very different to what it is right now. Um, so, so, you know, obviously kind of went through like different maturity stages and, and, and that, that journey. I think initially, obviously, we've had conviction that there will be demand in crypto or for crypto in the Middle East. I mean, there's a kind of backstory to this, right? Like I just like struggle for the longest time ever to buy Bitcoin in 2014 to an extent where I had to like message my friends who are like outside of the region <laughs> until one friend was like, oh, I, I think I heard about this Bitcoin thing. I have a friend of mine who lives in Canada. You know, he's been like posting about Bitcoin on Facebook. So let me ping him. So you know, ping this friend and he's like, yeah, of course I can help her buy Bitcoin. And, you know, we've done it on Local Bitcoins, PayPal, obviously ridiculous fees, ridiculous spreads, you know, all of that. But like, 
you know, I can actually buy Bitcoin now. Um, so it's been like a lot of friction and hassle. Like I don't think and the average person who wants to buy Bitcoin is willing to go through all of that, um, you know, and yeah. like search their directory. So I was like, okay, there must be like an easier way. Like if I want to buy Bitcoin and I'm struggling, right? I mean, there must be at least a few thousand people right now that want to also buy Bitcoin. The same, yeah. Can't find it. And they're not going to pay like 5%. I mean, I think it was even more. It was like 7% or something like that. That's uh, apart from the actual spread, which was a bit hard for me to kind of like figure out, okay, what was the spread? I mean, I wasn't even like that sophisticated at that point to kind of, you know, figure out what's the, you know, exchanges and all that. So anyway, um, so I was like, at least there are like a few thousand other people that want to do that. And then, you know, now it's like a hundred thousands and millions of people. Right. Um, so, so, you know, it kind of started with this and I was like, okay, so well, people want to buy Bitcoin. So it has to be a BTC um, retail product. You know, people still don't want to pay in Bitcoin <coughs> or like send money in Bitcoin because, you know, obviously that's not very easy to do, um, but they want to buy Bitcoin. So let's figure out a way where people can buy Bitcoin. So, you know, we've developed a wallet before, but then the wallet obviously was not, the, the wallet was, was just there for people to store their Bitcoin once they buy theirs. But like, you know, it had to be that rails where people can like buy and sell locally. Um, so, you know, so then we figured out a product around you know, that, so so a lot of what we're doing is figuring out what people have done in other markets and see how we can like bring it here. But then that quickly obviously changed where well people also want to trade. And then, you know, like we've rolled out a trading platform and then well people want other tokens and then we started rolling out other tokens. And and a lot of it was driven by the customer themselves, right? Um, I would say qualitatively, right? Because we were still not you know, the team wasn't big enough. Like we, we still didn't have the ability or resources to invest in like proper data, you know, teams, analytics and all of that. I mean, stuff that we're doing right now. And now I, I guess obviously it's a different story, right? Because, you know, we do everything from, you know, UX research, uh, understanding our personas uh, and even personas we don't have on the platform to like actual, obviously analytics that we rely on, on the quantitative side of things. And then you've got the qualitative side of things, right? The feedback your customers are getting, you know, um, the, uh, well, sentiment in general, right? Like um, how likely they'd like refer the platform. So, you know, obviously like other stuff in terms of, um, you know, market sentiment or, you know, customer sentiment overall. And it's just a combination of all of that, including um, the direction the market is, 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 is heading, right? Because ultimately your customers will tell you what they want, but in three to five years, what they say they want right now is not necessarily actually what they, what they need uh, or what they want to use. So I think also kind of getting or, or getting a, a long view of where the market is heading overall from a product perspective on the retail side of things and saying what, figuring out what role potentially we can play there is something that we look at. And I think it's a good example is just seeing what other platforms globally are doing, how certain markets are developing, um, and then figuring out some lessons learned. So it's like a really combination of different things. Um, one thing that is interesting is that like the crypto space is really very global. And also the customer behavior is also very global. So yes, you've got local demand and a local play to do, but your customers also expect you to be on par, same quality, same level as global platforms, because guess what? They can access them, right? So um, yeah. so, so that's also kind of poses a different type of, uh, um, uh, you know, like challenge. Um, 
and and just kind of figuring out okay so what is the what is the space that we can i can really play in and compete in is like something we continuously ask ourselves um and like reflect on uh but again it's like you know every quarter is like something new every even month i think there's something new in crypto so uh, so yeah, yeah yeah exactly it's it's really fun i think how did you solve for validation at the beginning with, with customers kind of worried to put maybe their money with a local startup in MENA uh, versus somewhere else? Very good question. And to some extent, I'm trying to actually kind of reflect back um, on you know some of the stuff that, <coughs> that we've done. <coughs> so here's the thing. I think crypto might be different to other type of you know, markets or spaces where like the early adopters are, are risk takers by nature, right? Because I mean, you're investing in an asset that is very risky <laughs> and um, you can know, well take a risk on a platform, right? Because <laughs> you're taking the risk anyway. So, I mean, you even see it with like people investing in like smart contracts or tokens like in DeFi, where it's like, oh, you know, disclaimer is like an unaudited you know, smart contract, but people still do it. Anyway, so, so that's like one thing that we absolutely love as well about people in crypto. I mean, especially in the early days or like early adopters is that there's a high sense of, uh, experimentation and, you know, dipping their toes and trying new products. And then also really, um, you know, take, take risks. Right. But again, um, you know, crypto is a high risk, uh, asset. So yeah. please do your own homework, um, or do your own research. <laughs> um, so, so I think early on, uh, we had the early adopters. I mean, it wasn't difficult to find them. They were like on Twitter and Reddit. So it was like, Hey guys, you know, here's a, <laughs> here's a platform you'll get like whatever bonus if you sign up and like people just signed up and then they referred their friends and you know all of that but yeah obviously we didn't have a huge uh customer base at that point um because i mean the crypto adoption wasn't actually really that high um when we've opened up the training platform we started we started actually seeing really nice uh traction um, I mean, mostly like Bitcoin and then we've rolled out Ethereum uh, trading. I mean, that like really, there was a point where like Ethereum trading was actually higher than Bitcoin. Um, anyway, um, but yeah, overall, I think it was, uh, yeah, like some early referral or like bonus uh, promos we've done. And then it just kind of became like word of mouth. Um, people tried it. They liked it. They've done like a few small transactions. They felt like more comfortable. Um, and then it just kind of like took off. Uh, but again, like, I, th I think it's, it's nothing like what we've seen this time around. I think this time it's no longer the early adopters that happy to take risks, right? I mean, those are probably moved on and already trading on like Binance, FTX and all that. Obviously they still use Bitwaces for other types of you know, transactions, but these guys are like more sophisticated now users, right? Yeah. But you've got this kind of new wave of new customers that are, are are not the early adopters, right? But they do have some experience investing. Um, they're probably investing uh, some money into crypto, but they're like your absolute newbies. Um, and that's a whole kind of different risk uh, appetite with uh, an approach in terms of figuring out, okay, are you regulated? How do you deal with like, you know, my funds explaining our terms of service. So, you know, that's like a whole kind of different persona. So yeah, that's what I'm saying is like, 
your customer actually changes as well as the adoption time, cycle yeah. grows and grows. Yes. Is, is adding new currencies more of a product challenge or a different challenge? Because I, I believe that's like one of the things that customers want is you know, it's always every day there's a new, every minute maybe there's new currency that's coming out or new token that you need to add. Uh, how do you go about that? Yeah, very good question. I feel like a customer is actually asking us this question because we get asked this question quite a lot. Um, so, I want to I mean, trade dogs. Number one, <laughs> one you're adding. Yeah, exactly. Which tokens do you want, Ray? <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> so, uh, number one, I mean, that's like a, I mean, it's a huge growth driver, right? People want to trade tokens. People want to find the next, you know, big thing. They want to like bet on like, you know, this token is going to do 10x, 100x. Yeah, it's kind of like investing in stocks as well. Like people do this in financial markets, right? And uh, same in crypto. Uh, now, the difference in crypto is obviously it's a different market dynamic. And and there are tokens that are absolutely doing or, you know, uh, teams that are absolutely doing you know, amazing work uh, in terms of tackling a particular challenge, be it in the DeFi space or DAOs or, you know, others or even like... <coughs> um, you know, like Ethereum uh, as well and Ethereum-like uh, blockchains. Uh, and then some that are like, you know, obviously like they're just copycats, right? Uh, and it's almost like difficult for people to tell what the difference is. Um, and that's a challenge. I mean, that's a challenge for us as an exchange as well. It's a challenge for the regulators. It's a challenge for the retail customers as well. Um, so for us, we actually do have an internal like due diligence process where we look at the protocol itself, uh, well, the project overall, right? The, um, the, 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 the stability of the protocol itself, its history of like any compromises, um, how busy, like just the community in terms of like GitHub commit, uh, commits, um, in terms of like patching up, you know, previous uh, issues and vulnerabilities. So, you know, all of that, obviously. Um, and then looking at the connectivity, so which exchanges have this token traded? Is it like on multiple other platforms? Does it have like healthy 24-hour volume, like liquidity and you know all of that? Traceability as well in terms of like um, network analytics tools. Um, you know, obviously we look at like the actual use case of the token, right? Like it's there with the future applications, uh, you know, developing towards that. It's not just some like copycat that doesn't have in the future. Um, you know, the strength of the team behind it, the community. So, you know, there's like obviously multiple stuff that we look at. I probably have like <coughs> left out to others, but, you know, we do that. And then also the regulators have to approve, right? So that's another thing. Uh, sometimes it can be like a lengthy process. Hard tick for me to comment in terms of how long it takes. It really kind of varies. Um, and then you've got some tokens that have been around for years and some new tokens are still quite new. So they're not as battle tested. Um, so, yeah, you've got like all of that. Now, for us, it's very important, like listing tokens, because we believe that it's going to be a multi-chain world anyway in BitOasis. It's not just going to be the top blockchains and that's it, or the you know the top tokens in terms of market cap. There will be multiple blockchains tackling multiple you know problems that eventually there might be some aspect of interoperability between them as well, but it's not like one winner take all or even like two or three, like they're multiple. And, and that's part of the experimentation of the space as well. It's like you as an exchange have to be able to support those ecosystems and support those projects to also get access for liquidity and trading and all of that. 
because uh, eventually, you know, I think this whole movement of tokenization will not just be obviously, um, you know, like Bitcoin investing in gold 2.0 or, 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 you know, like, let's say tokenizing money. I mean, I think companies will be tokenizing their shares and they'll be listing on venues like us, right? Uh, you know, I think um, commodities will be tokenized in different forms and shapes as well. You know, NFT, digital art will be tokenized and will be listed on exchanges like us to provide more transparency to the art market as well and price discovery in the art market. You know, real estate will also have, so it's like any form of, it's ownership. Right now, it's just a, like basically yeah, exactly. you're referring to ownership. So exactly. any form of ownership will be tokenized as an asset or whatever it is, including money, of course, and all of that. So, so yeah, so that's why venues are like us, our exchange uh, exchanges, brokerages. Um, you know, we do both. Uh, are important to be able to list those tokens because you're creating new markets for people to buy and sell and trade. Uh, how hard or easy is it for you to, to enter new markets in, in the region? Uh, you, can you operate under your uh, ADGM or whatever license in another market or do you need to go and get regulated from every single market that, that you, uh, country you're in in the region? Yeah, very good question. So a disclaimer there. So we've gotten our final approvals from Abu Dhabi Global Markets, HGM. So that's like FSP, um, Financial mm -hmm. Services Permissions. We're in the process of migrating our existing business to HGM. So we're not live under those licenses. And there's obviously like a process and we really want to make sure the migration goes as smooth as poss possible to our customers and, you know, all of that. Uh, so we're working with the regulators on that. Now, in parallel, we are a reporting entity to the central bank FIU unit in the UAE on a federal level. Um, and then obviously including collaborations with different law enforcement agencies and, uh, you know, different entities or authorities in the UAE to make sure our existing platform is obviously fully supervised, monitored until we go live under HM. So I, you know, on both ends, obviously, Bit Oasis has... Uh, supervisions and, uh, you know, regulation covered. Um, now, under ADGM, there isn't restriction as such in terms of which markets you serve. Obviously, you've got jurisdictions where you shouldn't be doing business, right? In terms of like sanctioned mm -hmm. countries, all of that. Yeah. Um, so far, GCC, including, uh, well, I would say like most parts of the Middle East, you know, give and take, well, places where we want to do business, right? is uh, pretty flexible. So there isn't a restriction as such jurisdiction you're serving so long as that jurisdiction does not have a restriction for you to serve it through okay. the UAE platform, right? So, um, so yeah, it's pretty flexible in there. Having said that, right, like, is it a great experience for someone in Saudi to use an offshore platform? Like, what are you bringing to the table versus you know, another international platform or Binance peer-to-peer, -peer, right, in Saudi, which does SAR, like, you know, all of that, right? So you really need to hyper-localize and localization comes at different levels. So you've got the hyper-localization that we have in the UAE. UAE bank accounts, you know, funding in AED, um, yeah. you know, obviously our support, like, you know, 24-7, rolling out chat very, <coughs> very soon, um, you know, integrations on funding, withdrawals, all of that. And that's great. That's fantastic. That's the like most optimal, like, you know, most localized experience you can provide your customers. And then you've got Saudi where people can do and trade Rial on BitOasis. However, the funding is still offshore <coughs> or cross-border. 
same with other uh, GCC countries. But then ultimately, people want to find an instant easy way to fund and all of that. And that you get with you know, that hyper-localization, getting local licenses, working with the local banks, really building that piping, right, um, to help you win in that market. Um, but then not every jurisdiction is ready to give you that, right? Like Saudi is still not licensing, you know, Egypt is still not licensing, right? But we're in touch with those regulators and, you know, we actively uh, work with them proactively, I would say even, um, you know, to kind of get a path forward. But for us, you know, we look at key markets, depending on the size of the market and the ROI, we figure out whether it's worth investing in license, right? And getting into this full kind of, you know, building the pipes. Um, so it really, it really depends. Um, however, you know, UAE platform pretty much serves the wider, I would say, GCC region mm-hmm. right now. <coughs> and at least. A shout out to our partner, the Woman Power Podcast, which is one of the leading bilingual podcasts in the MENA region. Hosted by Wafa Waidat, it focuses on featuring trailblazing women across different industries. You can listen to the Woman Power Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Uh, at the very beginning, when you started, uh, how did you get your first hundred customers? I think it's usually like one of the most challenging things in any business, getting your first customers in. So first 20 were like friends and family, basically. <laughs> so, <that laughs> was 80. Um, so, so yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's... Um, it's almost like you have to pay people to come, right? So, so yeah, we did a bit of that. Um, and uh, really like, you know, putting the word out in like Twitter and Reddit and the crypto communities that, hey guys, you know, there's a platform that you can use um, and like we'll waive the fees and we'll give you like a bonus or a promo to use us. Um I knew some of the people in the crypto space in the UAE, like they were running meetups and all of that. So kind of like, you know, put the word out in the community, which some of those communities are still very active and pretty, pretty big actually right now, uh, which is, you know, very nice to see. So it was, it was, you know, combination of that, right? Promos, tapping into communities where they exist, going on like social media. So yeah, stuff like that. And then when it was time kind of to scale and today, is your challenge uh, more on the regulation side or more on getting customers, especially with competition now coming in? You have a lot of international and local players as well that are that are coming out. Uh, I mean, like now driving on Sheikh Zayed, I see like a billboard of an exchange I've never heard of. Uh, so so how, how are you going about that in terms of taking that market share? Ooh, I think it depends on the market, right? For us, like we don't say Middle East and we just see like one, you know, one country, right? Again, like, I mean, even with the Kareem approach, right? It's like, it's even down to the city, right? So, so ultimately it's like the challenge is different based uh, on the country that we serve, right? Or, or the country where we want to like grow our market share and even the competition dynamics, like the competitive dynamics differ as well country to country. So we're really getting to that stage actually where, you know, the market is developing in a different pace, in a different way, in some markets over others, uh, which is a quite an interesting challenge, right? <clears throat> so, I mean, regulation, regulatory challenge is, is always there. And if you ask most people in crypto, 
I think there was like a recent survey done by one of our investors, DCG Digital Currency Group, where it was like regulatory risk <coughs> and regulatory challenge is the number one, um, you know, challenge for companies in crypto. Because, you know, if you're a crypto platform, which is part of your mission to provide a regulated market structure or market, you know, like as a, as a platform and the regulation is not ready for you to do that. You know, it's like half of your mission is like cut out. <clears throat> so, so it becomes very difficult, right, to execute. So you want to make sure there's like some readiness on the regular side of things. Now, again, we, we are a startup. We are a high growth startup. We're always going to be ahead of the regulators. I mean, we've been ahead of the regulators here in the UAE, across the region. Like, it's just, that's just the nature of, of things, right? And, and you always want to be closer to the market, you know, still close to your regulator, but you always want to be on the innovation side of things, right? On the, uh, on the side of like, what do my customers actually want, right? And figure out <coughs> ways how you can do that. Now, regulation plays a big part, right? It's almost like they have a say on what the product is. Uh, you know, indirectly, uh, maybe proxy through the banks. I don't know, but yeah, combination of those two basically. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so you—that's the stakeholder that you're gonna have to keep managing. Uh, and uh, there's not one specific playbook, uh, but it's uh, you know a thing that you have to continue. Yeah managing and maintaining and, and, you know, growing it as you grow your business and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so product is, you know, on the same level, uh, because here's the thing it's like when, um, you've got regulation, then, you know, you start kind of differentiating and, and the differentiation factor is no longer, Oh, I have a license, right. You really need to make sure you understand, there's how so you much uh, more. roll out, like, you know, products and all of that. Yeah, but then also, like, you're competing with global platforms. So also, like, you know, how do you make sure people are just not, like, exiting your platform and never coming back? So, so yeah, it's it's basically those three things, I would say. You know, on the product side, it's, like, two segments, but it's, like, really product and regulation, I think. Let's talk about differentiation from within. So your, your team, your culture... Uh, that's one of the biggest and most underrated challenges of a founder and CEO. Uh, you scaled from 30 to 100 plus now. Uh, what is your approach? Uh, first, uh, I would say to, to hiring, especially when you need to hire and assemble a team of, of executives. Uh, how do you make the hires? How do you find this talent? Uh, and how do you make sure that the culture remains, uh, you know, evolves, but remains kind of the way you see it? Yeah, a lot of it is like work in progress. And I feel like it just keeps changing and molding with almost every new hire that you have as well. Um, so, yeah, so it's a pretty, pretty big, big topic. So, so I think, um, you know, on your point in terms of, you know, you differentiate through your product for sure, but you also... I think there's an underrated way of differentiating versus the competition um, is, is your people, right? Making sure that you hire top quality people every, in every kind of, you know, step of the way. Um, and then uh, at every level as well. So it's almost like I always tell everyone on the team is that you have to keep hiring and raising that bar and keep hiring people who are better than, the existing people they have your team, right? Um, I mean, obviously that differs depending what the role is and who you're hiring, all of that. But 
all from like, I would say leadership positions all the way down. It's like, it, it really need to make sure that we're hiring to raise the bar. Um, so, you know, that's, that's one, obviously it's easier said than done. Um, and then, uh, you know, obviously you, you, you'll do mistakes. Um, you know, it's, it's not an easy one to, to, uh, get right. Uh, so there are like a couple of stuff that I think, uh, we've done, um, that, that I can say we've done right. Um, you know, also time will tell, right? Because you, uh, uh, a lot of these stuff that we're like doing as we speak right now, so we have scaled from like 30 ish or maybe 40 to like, I think now we're close to like 120 or so, um, in like a few months, like uh, three or four months or so. Uh, so hyperscale, obviously, in terms of adding talent. Um, I mean, that growth is still happening, actually, as we speak right now with uh, even new teams that we didn't didn't have before or haven't existed at Oasis before, uh, which is all exciting. Um, so one thing that we've done right, and it's also my advice to anyone who's going through that a to B scale, right? Series A to Series B. So you're, you know, you're you're really like hyper uh, scaling. Um, is you need to hire a very strong uh, CHR level, like Chief Human Resources level person, ASAP, before you go through that hyper scale on hiring people. And you may feel like, oh, but, you know, I don't have that many people right now. Why do I have to, like, hire this person and they're going to have to dictate things? Well, they're going to, like, save you a lot of trouble um, because with more people on board, <laughs> more headache and trouble you're going to have to deal with. Because, you know, guess what, right? People want to see certain things done in a certain way. And, and then there's this whole kind of set of administrative stuff that you're going to have to do. And then onboarding and making sure that people hit the road running ASAP and, and you know all of that and uh, you're gonna hire different people different cultures of different skill sets and you know they come with expectations and you want to make sure because like the first 90 to 100 days of a new hire is is, is actually what's going to make or break their their, yeah. their time in the organization right you want to make sure you're setting up everyone to success as much as you can right as much as possible so they can like shorten that time to get the you know knowledge download and be able to contribute and add value to the business ASAP, right? So, so you know, and, and, and you need someone to be on top of that, right? And then get that What download. do you look for in, you in that person, the head of people, HR? <coughs> Sorry? What do you look for in the, the HR, the head of HR hire? Uh, what did you look for from your side? What is the kind of like objectives that you want that person to get? Or someone down? who's... Uh, Someone who's done the same thing that we want to do or I want it to do in a different tech company, right? So someone who's done that, you know, been there, done that in other hyper growth tech companies. Uh, and there are like a lot of them, obviously, in the region where they had to go through that really massive, very fast, you know, uh, growth on the people side of things, right? And they, they, they know how it goes. They know what can go wrong. They know what you know, has to be done and like try to minimize the margin of error as much as possible. And I do this actually with most hiring right now, hire someone who's done it before, or to some extent, their experience is as close as what you want them to do. So you can minimize the mistakes. I, I mean, mistakes are going to happen, right? But like kind of yeah. minimize that as much as possible. And, but, but what you need to 
do as a founder is to be absolutely clear on what you're trying to do, right? So to so have that clarity in terms of, well, I need that person because I want them to do this, this, this over the next three to six to 12 months or whatever it is. And uh, that's the experience. That's like the experience I'm not going to compromise on. And then go interview, meet people, like, you know, get, I don't know, referrals, references, whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Often, uh, I think that the two, like the communication and decision making are the easiest thing, seem to be easy when you're like a team of 10 people at the beginning, because it's easy to make decisions very clear, not easy, but it's clear who makes the decisions, how decisions get made. And same thing with communication. When you went from, you know, right now you're saying going through it from the 30 to 100 plus, uh, process becomes important and, and communication, decision making becomes a lot more difficult and less intuitive in terms of how it gets done. Uh, so what's what's your approach to that in terms of, you know, setting up the right process uh, to ensure kind of better communication and decision making? Um, also work in progress. I think we're experimenting quite a lot in that area. So I can't say we got it right. However, I think once every month or so, I try to kind of tweak some of our communication frameworks internally, of course, um, to see what actually works very well for like teams. What are you, you know, doing well, right me, now? Me, CEO, leadership team, etc. So, So, you know, like, I think once you kind of go above the 150 mark, and I think, um, you know, that's where it becomes a challenge to really align people. And so uh, you need to rely on your executive team to make sure they also communicate very well to their team and other dark rappers and, and team members. So you start kind of relying on other people versus you just like communicating, right? But then not only you start relying on other people as channels, right, for that message, you also rely on different mediums in the sense that, you know, obviously uh, in a meeting, verbally you're communicating things, you're discussing, you're negotiating, blah, 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 etc. But you start realizing that this is not very scalable, right? Uh, because you can't be talking 24-7. Uh, and, you know, people have work to do, so they're not going to, like, just sit in meetings with you. It's just going to get, like, you know. Uh, very boring. Uh, but anyway, but you, you, you start like relying on, you know, written communication and, um, you know, to some extent, even like video or recording videos and like sending it to other teams or, you know, other team members for the other team. So like you need to start kind of getting creative on how you communicate certain things. And I'm a fan of writing things because a, it gives you clarity when you write it, you know, kind of, you know, you start kind of seeing your thoughts, right, in front of you, and then you've, well, it helps you kind of like really bulletproof your thinking. But then also, it's a great way for the other person to really understand what you're trying to say, if it's really yeah. written in a in a clear way. So you know, you're not just relying on verbal, you know, communication or communicating things to people, but people love that, right? But then people's att attention span is very you know, limited as well. So like 15 minutes into the call, like people are like checking their phones, but also you want to like communicate it in a written format, in a fun format, while continue actually iterating and reiterating. Uh, How do you enforce written communication? Do, do, you, do you ask for I documentation? I think there's a bit of lag on the line, by the way. Sorry? 
I think there's a lag on the line. Can you repeat your question? Uh, I know, yeah, yeah. I'm struggling a little bit with connection and myself. Saying, do you? How do you enforce uh, communica- communication and written communication? Do you uh, through documentation or minutes of meetings or how do you enforce that? Uh, good question. So um, it's not enforcing communication per se. Um, well, a you need to have good communication skills. And that comes out in the interview, right? So that's one of the core competencies, I mean, especially as a manager. So if you're a team lead, a manager, you know, especially if you're in the executive team, so that obviously uh, comes in like for granted. You, you need to be a good communicator, right? Because if you're going to deal with people, you know, you're going to have to communicate. <laughs> so that's, that's one thing. Um, so I think, so, you know, actually we have, we have a few people that probably even struggled with that. Um, so... The thing is, it's like people should be utilizing meetings. And actually, that's what I, I, I iterate and reiterate so many times. You know, we're not blocking people's calendars, right, to communicate stuff that we can write. Like, oh, what happened last week? I don't know. Blah, blah, blah. I hear the updates, right? You know, the, the, the hour or 45 minutes that you have in a meeting should be <laughs> dealt with so preciously that what you're doing in that meeting is actually discussing the challenges around what happened or what you want to discuss or like, you know. So you come in with an actual context already given to people who are attending that meeting of what has to be discussed. So people come in already with ideas and, you know, so obviously that excludes like blue sky thinking, brainstorming sessions, you know, that's like different, right? We're here, we're just kind of talking about like the, you know, day-to-day meetings that happen and, you know, weekly management meetings, like, you know, stuff like that, right? You already communicate the others. So the, 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 the updates that you communicate are written, right? But what, what happens in the meeting is stuff that you cannot communicate, you know, through writing things because it's just not a great way for people to like communicate ideas by writing it down. It's just like, uh, obviously it's not very interactive. So, so that's like where it kind of, you know, and it starts, uh, people start started getting used to it, which is great. Um, it almost becomes a habit. Like I'm not going to sit down with you for an hour to hear what your updates, you can just like freaking send it to me on a bullet point. Great. I'll read it and I'll be like, amazing. Thank you very much. Right. I don't need to do that in a meeting. What I need to do is discuss with you what I think about those points and what challenges are and potentially how we can solve it right together. So, so, you know, so it's like really kind of shifting that mindset and that thinking, which, you know, people are like, Oh, here's what I did yesterday. I was like, just going to like, just, just send it (laughs) on an email. (laughs) We don't need to sit in a meeting for that. So that's, anyways, it's just like a bit of that. So yeah, that makes sense. Uh, when it comes to uh, culture, and I want to ask you about company politics specifically. That's something that you know a lot of founders deal with as their company scales. How do you avoid politics, or you know, control company politics as as you're scaling? Very good question. I mean, I think. Uh, well, people or humans by nature are political animals. So I think there's an aspect of human psychology that, you know, we should be able as leaders, regardless what the industry that you're in or the space you're in, I mean, it's, you know, understanding human psychology is important. And I think uh, it kind of helps you ultimately, you know, uh, avoid certain things, but then certain things happen and it just happens because we're humans. Um, but I mean, regardless, right, there's certain things that you can do, 
Um, and I mean, I'm not saying that, I mean, I'm no, I'm no expert. I, I, I mean, I think in that area, um, at all, but, um, I, I think when you start growing your business and you start like growing your, the, you know, the number of people that you have in the company and the teams, you start kind of, you know, noticing these things and, and it's almost like they just happen organically. Right. It's just like, because we're humans, we're social animals, you know, and all of that. Um, but I think, I think there's certain things that you can do to, to, to make it uh, better. Right. Uh, and make sure that ultimately the social behavior doesn't create a condition where it's a culture that is toxic, right? Uh, or, you know, you've got that fostering in a way that um, makes people uncomfortable and not wanting to or succeed or flourish in that particular environment. And I think it all kind of always starts um, uh, at the top. Uh, the founders, the executive team ultimately kind of, you know, to some extent, it's not a replica of the founder, but it mimics like the values uh, are, are shared. Uh, well, a, it has to be like a meritocracy, right? I mean, ultimately, <clears throat> the right person should be at the right place, and uh, um, people people see that, people notice that, and you know, it's like you know, there's certain things that like people are are able to see through other people, right? So I think like uh, meritocracy, having the right person at the right place, is 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 uh, one part. Um, you know, not exercising any favoritism, uh, again, like meritocracy as well, uh, is also another part. I mean, it's, um, <coughs> I think something even like Arab leaders, uh, you know, it's like, it's like, well, maybe we shouldn't go there, but, but <laughs> in the sense that like a lot of, a lot of problems in the region could be easily solved yeah. by introducing meritocracy. <laughs> <laughs> and not exercising favoritism. So, you know, that's like the top one, right? Um, and then the other stuff is uh, you have to hold people accountable, right? So you have to have a culture of uh, accountability um, because ultimately, uh, you know, that's how you demonstrate to people is that if you do a good thing, then there's a reward. If you don't do uh, something that is, or, or if, you, if you do something that is not acceptable based on the values or the code of ethics you've got in the company, then there's also a consequence to that, right? Like, I'm not saying you go punish people, but you hold them accountable, right? You address it, you demonstrate how it should have been handled differently, and you, as a leader, have to demonstrate to people, right? Because that's how people learn. Like, you, you don't just say, oh, you know, don't do that, but you also have to demonstrate how it should be done. So, so yeah, it's just like aspects of that. I mean, again, like, I think a lot of what we're doing is trialing and erring. I mean, even in my mind, like, um, you know, things change as the company changes. So, I mean, I could be saying a completely different thing three months from now. <laughs> I definitely wouldn't be saying that three months ago, but yeah. So. Yeah, things evolve very quickly. Uh, and and yeah, so on exactly. the culture side... I'd be like, Ray, then, everything I said in the podcast, <laughs> please scrap <scuff> it out. <laughs> Let's do the interview all over again. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's continuously evolving kind of like thing. But when it comes to uh, so conflict resolution within your your culture and dealing with conflict within like people from your executive team or different people fr from within your team uh, when they have conflict among each other, how, how do you address that when two people come and say you know or someone says that they're in a conflict with someone else? Cool. So I think conflict is good and conflict is healthy. 
I mean, to some extent, I feel like if people are not getting into conflict, I'm like, oh, something, something is wrong. Like someone is not speaking <laughs> their minds, right? So <laughs> to begin with, I think yeah. like it's great to approach conflict from the mindset of great people are discussing ideas. They get into conflict. That's amazing. Um, now, obviously, like conflict is a very generic word. So different conflicts uh, have different um, issues and causes, and you know all of that. So I don't think there's like one way to deal with conflict. I mean, A, I always hope that conflict got resolved before it comes to me, right? The reality, obviously, that, that sometimes happens and that sometimes doesn't happen. Um, if there's conflict, I think it has to be addressed ASAP, uh, especially among like executives or let's say key people in the company, you know, all of that. I mean, all, all conflict, but <coughs> specifically that because you don't want something that goes unresolved eventually grow way out of proportion and you know and then again it kind of starts affecting the culture and the teams and how effective they are so you know you really like have to tackle conflict asap and um and then there's potentially conflict that i think it makes sense for me to step in and other conflicts where I'm like well guys you're just gonna have to resolve it yourself right <clears throat> you you you, you you should have the ability to resolve like a conflict. So it really kind of depends, I think, on the magnitude eventually. But um, that's where I think kind of going back to your point, you know, how do you avoid politics? I think you have to approach it from uh, the perspective of um, you have to treat people equally, uh, listen and, you know, like engage, obviously, if, if it's a conflict that requires you to step in. Um, but then really make sure you're doing the best to the business because ultimately when people realize that everything, everything they are doing or every decision you're taking or whatever it is, is for the benefit of the company. Eventually, I think that's where people start realizing there's, there's, there's no favoritism here. Right. Like, so, you know, just like, uh, it's very generic, right. But, uh, uh it depends, I think, uh, ultimately, um, now I think obviously there's like conflicts that, yeah, I mean, I mean, they happen every day, right? Um, but conflict resolution and, and figuring out how to tackle that is something that I actually re iterate and reiterate quite a lot to the team. Um, conflicts do happen. Uh, it's, it's healthy. People should voice out their opinions and they should debate and all of that. Um, but there should also be a way that, you know, you're able to resolve conflict uh, in a way where it doesn't get to a point where like, you know, someone's ego is overpowering someone, you know, so, so it's like stuff like that. It's just like, it's not cool. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to ask you about something that's usually not talked about much among, among founders, uh, which is how do you deal with your own psychology as a, as a, as a CEO and, and a founder, uh, making sure you don't go and say, you know, while running the, the company. <laughs> Whoa, okay, Ray, that needs a whole different podcast. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a tough, it's a tough one, right? <laughs> right? I mean, I think if you ask any founder, uh, like, it's a roller coaster, right? I mean, some days you're like, oh, this is the most amazing thing in the world, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then, like, the next day you're like, oh, shit, you know, uh, <laughs> NGMI, we're not going to take <laughs> yeah, or like whatever it is. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so, so, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's a roller coaster. I mean, I think ultimately um, you get to a point where like, okay, you realize, look, some days are going to be great, some days not. Um, 
and just kind of like uh, try to kind of take emotions out of the equation, right? I mean, I, I think that's like uh, one of the struggles. You know, I find some founders, I mean, I haven't met all the founders in the world, so I can't like talk on behalf of founders. Um, but like, I see, you know, some founders, you know, kind of get like so emotionally invested in, in and um, yeah, it, it can be like pretty tough uh, if you do that. Um, but the reality, I think like, uh, you know, once you get to a point where, look, you go there, you do your best, some things work and some things are not going to work. And you're just going to have to keep trying until it works, right? And if you have enough conviction that actually what you're working on is actually sensible, you know, maybe your your, your yeah. idea sucks and that's it and you just stop. But anyway, um, the reality is that um, you're just going to have to take emotions out of the equation and like just do it uh, for the fun of it and because you love doing this. Um, but don't get like way too attached uh, to it. Is it taking um, is it taking emotions completely out or controlling like your emotions? I think like sometimes you want to keep that kind of like some things require like some emotion, you know, in terms of like when you're running a business, but you want to control oh, yeah, them yeah, yeah. at the same time. Uh, very good uh, point. Well, perhaps exactly because, you know, you're, you're a human being at the end of the day. Um, well, I get <coughs> taking the emotions out or controlling your emotions. I think probably controlling your emotions is a better way of putting it because the reality is you can't just be surgical about it. Right. So, so yeah, I think that's a better way of actually saying it is like you yeah. uh, want to become a stoic. Essentially you should control your reaction to what happens to the outside world. What happens to the outside world is something not for you to dictate or control, but how you react to it yeah. is, is ultimately. Yeah. So definitely. Yes, a stoic approach to things. I agree. That's awesome. Uh, as we reach the end of the of, the, of our time here, uh, what what is next for Bit Oasis? What's next for Bit Oasis? Uh, <laughs> very good question. I mean, um, we're definitely focused on growth. We're all uh, heads down, uh, excited about what we do, and taking a long term approach to building this company and being in the space uh, and, you know, being a market leader in the space as well. Uh, it's an exciting space that, uh, you know, I, th I think uh, the, the upside is, is just massive, right? And it's not just the region, I think crypto overall. Um, so we, we are committed to the region as well, right? I mean, we were born in the Middle East. We're committed to making sure that the crypto ecosystem and this industry grows as well as we grow. So for us, it's, you know, being live in new markets, licenses in other markets really give the opportunity for like hundreds of thousands to millions of people. That's obviously like in the next two to three years, right? To millions of people access to crypto and buying and selling and securely trading. DeFi and NFTs is on the horizon, 100%. Um, I mean, we definitely need to venture you know, outside of the exchange space. And, and that's how I see us as a you know, crypto platform, right? We're not just um, means for people to buy, sell and trade. So, so really like getting into different verticals in crypto, becoming uh, a crypto platform, a one-stop shop for people to do uh, what, you know, beyond just buying and selling and trading, 
And then being live in various markets across the region and outside of the region as well. So huge plans. Um, I think, you know, if you're in crypto and you're not taking a long-term approach, um, then you're not going to reap the, you know, real rewards uh, off, off this space. But also it's just fun seeing how things are growing in crypto. It's just like, uh, it's exciting. So, yeah. Yeah, this is awesome. Now, you guys built an amazing company so far. And uh, if people want to reach you personally, uh, what are you most active on? Are you on Twitter? On What, what is the best way to reach you? Uh, Twitter, for sure. Uh, you can DM me. I mean, I'm not always like actively tweeting and stuff. I do check my Twitter, though. So if you do message me, I will get you know, we'll get back to you at some point. Um, that actually, that would be the platform that I would recommend 100%. All the rest, I'm like, yeah. I have accounts, but not like. Yeah, I'm, I'm only on, like mainly on Twitter. That's where, where I live. <laughs> yeah, right, please don't so send me a message on LinkedIn. Also, on that note, like LinkedIn messages. No. <laughs> you're never going like, your, yeah. your message is going to be like drowning and sucked in like with hundreds other <laughs> messages. So, like, please, Twitter, your go to place. Also, thank you very much for, for joining. It was really great uh, chatting with you. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for having me. That was so much fun. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this podcast and want to listen to more episodes, subscribe to the Meta Conversations podcast on one of your favorite podcast channels. 